Welcome to the Restorative Justice Chronicles podcast, Chapter 4. I am your host, Deb Witzel, a restorative justice facilitator, consultant, trainer, public speaker, and program developer. The Restorative Justice Chronicles is a collection of stories with people who have personal experience with RJ. I am very excited to share this episode, which is the first in a three-part series, which is a story in and of itself. In the process of producing this episode, I got COVID, the holidays occurred, and there were technical difficulties with the recording. I kept wondering, what is going on with the universe on this one? This episode has been full of surprises. It features Jason Kaspernak, who survived a robbery at gunpoint in the late 1990s. The two men that committed the crime were young at the time, as was Jason. And one of those men was errantly released before his sentence would normally have allowed. The other has been incarcerated this whole time. You might think this episode would be about Jason and the released person, but it isn't. It is about the high-impact dialogue that occurred with Jason and Michael Clifton. Right after we recorded this episode, Jason encouraged me to reach out to Michael's family to talk about a restorative process he had recently done with them. So the second episode in this series will be with Ernestine Clifton, Michael's mom, whom Jason has developed a close friendship with. Then, at the end of December, Jason called me to let me know that Michael Clifton has received clemency. You'll get a glimpse of how Michael's imminent freedom lands for Jason in this episode. Once Michael is back in the community and ready to talk with us, we will talk with him for the third episode of this series of three in the Restorative Justice Chronicles. So I hope you will tune in for all three episodes and ride this wave with us. As with all episodes of the Restorative Justice Chronicles podcast, there are things that are hard to hear. So take care of yourself and anyone else in earshot. And now, Chapter 4 of the RJ Chronicles with Jason Kaspernak. We are with Jason Kaspernak. And Jason, we're going to start with... As a prologue, you telling everyone a little bit about yourself, maybe starting with how you got to be the man that you are. It sounds like you've had so many adventures in your life. How did you become such an adventurer? Well, I say becoming an adventurer was pretty much through my mother and father that always took us out into the wilderness and did things with us and things of that nature. So tell us a little bit about who you were in the 1990s, the late 1990s, when this incident that we're going to talk about today happened. Um, At that time, I was married to my first wife. I had basically 
pretty much gotten off the street with her. Um, she helped me get off the street when we first met. I was living in Aurora at the time and was just getting a new apartment with uh, my wife at the time. 1998, that was one of the best places to even find a job because it was just exploding right over in that area at that time. So that's just where I went. So you worked at the video store. as What was your job? I was the assistant store manager at the time. Very cool. Anything else you want to share about who you are in the world? Um, me, I, I'm just a simple man, you know, and that's all I am. I try to find and look for the best in people. And just like I've always, you know, told my son that, you know, everybody's beautiful until they show you that they're ugly from your, their heart, you know. doesn't matter what anybody looks like. doesn't matter who, what they are, or what they look like, you know. Until someone shows you they're ugly from their heart, then they're always beautiful. Mm. Wow, that is an amazing life philosophy. Where do you think you learned that? Again, from my father and from my mother. Mm. They sound like they were good folks. Oh, absolutely. (laughs) Yeah. If you were going to dedicate your RJ Chronicle to someone, who would you dedicate it to and what would you say? I would definitely dedicate it to... Uh, Michael Clifton's mother, Ernestine Clifton, and his son and his daughter. And just let them know, I'm sorry about my spontaneous decision, as it was your son's spontaneous decision. Yeah. Because in the decisions that we both made, we were wrong. And I have no problem saying that I was wrong in accepting the decision that I heard when it came about. For his sentencing, you mean? Yes, ma'am. Yeah. And you don't have to call me ma'am. Just call <laughs> me dad. Okay, dad. <laughs> Let's uh, hear the story of 1998 and the spontaneous decisions that were made by Michael Clifton and his partner in crime. Well, again, in 1998, I was the assistant store manager. I was the opening manager at that time. And um, I went in to go ahead and open the store. The, the store face faces east. It's all uh, big plate glass windows in the very front. So it had the metal slats that go in between the windows to hold the windows in place. So when I went into the building, I uh, unlocked the door, got in, shut off the alarm, and I walked up to the front counter to start putting things down and um, getting ready to get the registers and open the store, things like that. And I heard a huge bang in the store, and 
I looked around and didn't see anything. And I was like, oh, because we were supposed to be getting the air conditioning fixed on the roof of the building as well. They were going to put a new AC up on the roof. And it was so loud. I thought that it was the AC company out there. And that's what I thought that big, huge boom was. And then all of a sudden, I saw out of the corner of my eye a figure backing up. I couldn't see much of it. And I saw someone, a figure that was hooded, someone trying to get in the window. And I ducked down and started looking around for a place to hide. And I uh, crawled over to where the night drop box is. And I was hoping, because it's just a couple of cabinet doors, but <laughs> I'm a pretty skinny guy. I could have fit in those cabinets. So I opened it up, but it was completely full. There was no way I could get in it. So I closed it up and I went up, just kind of ducked and ran up to the front counter because I remembered that my district manager had told me that there is a button right up under there and it's a silent alarm. So I ran up and hit the silent alarm. And as soon as I did that, that's when Michael Clifton approached me. But at this time, remember, I only saw one person that was backing up. I figured, okay, he came up and got me and he's yelling, move, move. He's all, come on, stand up, move, let's go, let's go. And he's pushing me from behind. And I was thinking, okay, I just hit the silent alarm. I'm going to walk as slow as I can and make him push me. So it'll give them time, the police time to get here and catch him inside of the building. So I kind of slowed down for a little bit and let him push me. And then he finally yelled, come on, move. And he pushed me real hard. And I said, oh, you want me to move? And I just took off running. I started thinking, okay, if I can make it to the back simplex lock, I can open that door, slam it shut, and there's an emergency exit in that office. So I ran as fast as I could to that door, and that's when I noticed when I got to the door, it was broken. And I pushed the door open, and right when I pushed the door open, that's when I saw I had the barrel of a rifle in my face because the gunman was standing inside of the office waiting for me. And um, since I ran away from Michael so fast and got to the office before he did, he started screaming, don't shoot him, don't shoot him, I'm okay, I'm okay, because he thought that I took him out in the front and was trying to make it to the back. So when we got to the back office and stuff, um, they took me over to the safe and told me to to open the safe because at that time there was no money up at the front. I had just got there, so I hadn't had time to pull the tills out of the safe or anything. So I went back and I started putting the combination into the safe. And just being nervous, you know, at the first time, I uh, slipped and hit the wrong button. And so I was like, okay, hold on, let me do it again. And so I go to put the code in the safe. And right before I get to the last number, the other gentleman with the rifle hit me in the back of the head with the rifle. I leaned and I slipped and leaned forward and hit the wrong button again. And so that was the second code that had gone in one after the other that was the wrong code. And um, at this time, the only thing I could see was their eyes. Their hands were covered. Their bodies were covered. And... When I hit it the second time, I turned around and said, now, if you want anything... You better quit doing that because if I mess it up this time, 
then it's going to shut down for 15 minutes and you guys will get nothing. The police had not gotten there yet. I'm still waiting for the silent alarm and them to get there. And I finally get the safe opened and I start pulling the, the tills out and start handing the tills to them. And they started telling me, give us a deposit too and everything in there. And since it was early morning, we had not done the deposit yet. So... I got the deposit bag and I opened it up and was still thinking that the police were on the way. So I started pulling the money out of the deposit bag and throwing it backwards over my shoulders and just throwing it into the air and letting it fly all over the room and saying, oh, you want it all, do you? Here you go. Here you go. And they finally got mad enough and grabbed me and took the bag out of my hand and threw me away and got the rest of the money and everything. And in a sense, uh, Either way it goes, I was very much panicking. When you say either way, what were you thinking were the possibilities? Well, in a situation like that, your either way is you either make it out alive, alive and hurt maybe, or most of the time just dead. So I figure we all have a time to go. And if that's what was going to be it for me, then... I wanted to control the situation as much as I could. And that's kind of the way that it was for me. And they've had the gun to the back of my head and had me on my knees and asked me, you know, if we let you live, what do you want to see? And I told him, I just want to see my daughter again. I, I think that calmed him more down in that moment, in that situation. Um, just to let him know that I had a daughter. They left and told me to stay in, in the office. And so when they left, of course, uh, being as hard-headed as I am, I ran out right after him. Let him get far enough away so they didn't hear me open the door and I ran out and I got a complete description of the car and everything else before they left. And then I called 911 and reported the robbery and everything and told them, I said, didn't you guys get the silent alarm? I hit the silent alarm a long time ago and I've been waiting for you guys to get here. And they said, we have no silent alarm, you know, so the district manager showed up. The same guy that told me that was the silent alarm. When I walked up to him, he said, Jason, I have to tell you, that's not a silent alarm. Didn't tell you the truth in the first place. That's not a silent alarm. And so <laughs> that was kind of disheartening. I was really upset about that because I was putting my whole life on the line the entire time thinking that was a silent alarm. About two days later, I found out that Michael Clifton was a assistant manager. So that's how he knew about the times that the deposits would be there, the times when the manager's going to be in there to open the stores, times when they're by themselves. He had been in that store several times. I didn't know who he was at the time. Anything else that you want to tell about the incident that led up to your restorative justice experience? What kind of led me up to this is because what they did when they were that young. How old were they? I, I, I believe Michael 
was maybe 2021 at the time. I'm not exactly sure. The only thing is, is that what they did was a moment in time. It was one minute of a true kind of horror story, you know, but not a murder story. It was a very spontaneous decision for them to make. And yes, it was a greedy, ignorant decision for them to make. But when it came down to it, I was supposed to testify against them. I was having police come up to me and people from the company and saying, you know, remember what they did. You know, they told me that I would not have to testify because they took a plea deal. That the plea deal was for 98 years. And then I became the one that was making a spontaneous, arrogant, and ignorant decision based off a moment in time. If they ever would have let me know about them, my decision would have been different. And is it really worth 98 years of their life? 98 years of their life. 98 years of their life. Yeah. What had you decide that you wanted to meet with them i decided to meet with michael clifton because they again were coming to me and asking me that he is asking for clemency so when i was asked how i felt about that and do i think that he should be let out I told them that is just not a fair question. You can't ask that of me because I've never even known him. I know what he did in that moment in time. But the problem is I can't base his whole life off of that. And I said, if you want my opinion, I am going to have to meet with him face to face. I want to know who he is. Let's talk about what brought you to actually doing the restorative justice process. Then that's where I met this wonderful lady, Lynn Lee, that is an advocate and a wonderful, wonderful woman that set everything up so that we could go ahead and meet on a common ground and talk to each other. That's where it was a lot of my thinking of the situation changed because I saw the changes in him. The things that Michael Clifton has done inside of that prison with the lives that he has changed and the radio station that he started in Sterling Prison that's the only radio station in Colorado out of any prison. He also started where they go and they do plays all over the place, and it's the inmates that do these plays and practice for them. Um, He's helping a lot of them get their GEDs and their educations while they're in there. And he is a completely different man than he was from that moment in time. Mm -hmm. And they still refuse to let him out of there. And And so you got to meet with him with Lynn. Yeah. And so what was that 
restorative justice process when you met face to face. What was that like for you? I guess it was kind of odd because I was still kind of shaken like the first day I ever met him because I, I really didn't know what his reaction was going to be. You know, he's going to meet with a guy that has agreed to put him away for the rest of his life. He's meeting with a guy that, you know, he robbed back in the day, and it was a very intense moment, and that's all we knew each other from was that intense situation. So I remember walking in and shaking his hand and telling him who I was and sitting down and listening to him and talking to him and asking about him. And I found out about his kids and everything else and his grandchildren and what he is doing inside of the prison system and what a positive role model and everything he is inside of the prison system. And so when you were in the room with him, having a conversation about what happened and who he is today, what was that like for you? It was... Truly, truly enlightening, sitting there and looking at the gentleman that I agreed to go ahead and put away for the rest of his life, and then sit there and have to remember that I made a huge mistake in a moment in time, just like he did. I not only put him in prison for 98 years, I put his kids, his mother, and everybody else there just as much as I did him. Because, again, I just didn't think of my actions. Is there room for forgiveness? Well, yeah. In this situation, there is. When we talked and everything was said and done and over, we stood up and we hugged each other and we told each other we love each other. And I told him, I will do everything I can to help fight to get you out of here now instead of keep you in here. That's a beautiful thing. Thank you for that. It sounds like it was really life-changing, probably for both of you. Yes, um, <laughs> it very much was. Humbling and enlightening for both of us, because neither one of us thought that, that that moment in time would ever happen. What does this next chapter look like for you now that you've had the restorative justice process? So I'm still fighting for him to be able to get out. You know, um, as a victim, I had a say-so of putting him in prison. As a victim, shouldn't I have a say-so in possibly letting him go? Yeah. I love that you're telling this part of the story. There is the past. The past happened. Yeah. You know, there are three stories. There's the past, there's the present, that's what's happening now, is you getting to know Michael and realizing, wait a minute, and those are influencing the future. And the story of the future for Michael is now shaped by the past and your experiences of him as a human being. And that's what so often is missing. But you, as a human being, have taken the time to get to know him as a human being. And it comes back to the thing that you were talking about at the very beginning, where you said, it's all about what's in somebody's heart. That's how you know who you're dealing with. You judge them based on who they are from their heart. 
I so appreciate that. His heart is still absolutely beautiful. Yeah. It's so amazing to hear you say that, too. Thank you, Jason. Well, we have one last question, and that is, if you were to choose a title for your story, what would the title of this be? Um, Spontaneous Decisions. Thank you so much, Jason, for sharing your story with us and for being so honest and open-hearted. And thank you very much for allowing me to. And I have to say I love all the Clifton family, and thank you. This chapter of the Restorative Justice Chronicles is entirely Jason Kasparnak's story. Please join us for the next episode of this three-part series with Michael Clifton's mom. If you liked what you heard, please share the RJ Chronicles podcast with other folks. That is how we spread the word. Stay up to date with the Restorative Justice Chronicles podcast by following us on Instagram at the.rjchronicles or on Facebook at the Restorative Justice Chronicles. If you want to know more about the full spectrum of my work, visit 3storiesconsulting.com. The Restorative Justice Chronicles podcast is produced by me, Deb Witzel. The original music is by Sean Michael Flynn, and we thank you for listening to the RJ Chronicles podcast. Mm-hmm.